We, we live in a highly distracted uh, generation. Uh, those electronic devices in your pocket right now, some of you are reading along in your Bible with that right now, uh, are, are a big part of that. And um, there are continual messages that are being sent our way. And uh, some of those messages are, are, quite, are, are quite emotionally, uh, emotionally driven. When someone used to cry in a public setting, they would sort of quickly get out of wherever the public happened to be. But have you noticed that as you're going through social media, how many people are posting themselves crying? It's almost as though to be emotionally hurt is sort of like the most authentic that you can, that you could possibly come across. And that, that the greatest people are the people who are, who are hurt and who are crying. And rather than sort of like, I'm going to cry, I need to go over here. Now it's like, I want the world to know that I'm emotionally hurt. We, we live in an age that, that has really just kind of rejected facts and is just focused on feelings. And if something strikes me emotionally, and if something hurts me, then it can't be right. It can't be true because my, my feelings is what is leading our, 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 our individual lives and it's feelings that's really driving our culture. We live in an emotional age and it has a lot to do with the fact that we live in a technological age. We also live in an age where, where we we are continually scrolling for better options. Like, like before, I remember back to school shopping, I, I would go to Foot Locker and, uh, with my mom or my dad, and there would be like you know, three, three pairs of shoes in, in my size. And, and so I, I didn't, and, and the expensive ones were right out. So it was really between like B and, and the C option, and my parents often chose, chose the C option. And... But the options were so limited. Now, if I want to buy a pair of shoes for my kids, I mean, I, I could be scrolling through Amazon, I could be visiting Foot Locker's website, all these other, I could spend hours looking at hundreds of shoe options. Have you ever noticed, have you, have you, have you done a, a, an event recently where you've tried to R, have guests RSVP? It's almost impossible, right? Because people are, they're sort of afraid. It's, it's like they're scrolling through options. Uh, uh, just like a just like hundred shoes. Well, well, if I say yes to go to this event, I mean, what if there's another? I mean, this wedding seems really nice, but what if something else comes along? Well, I know it's my daughter. I probably should be there. But there's, there, there, there could be another, another option. We, we live, we are living in a world and, and our, our phones and our flesh are contributing to this. We are living in a world that is allergic to commitment and that is averse to confrontation. We, we are afraid to hurt someone's feelings because if their feelings are hurt, they just play the feeling trump card. I'm crying now. I'm upset now. You've, you've hurt me. And it doesn't matter if what you said was factual. It, it, it all depends on that person's Feelings, we, we, are, we are afraid of confrontation and we are allergic to commitment. I, I don't know if I want to do this because, you know, something better might come along. 
And it, it works its way into our shopping choices. It works its way into our social lives. It works its way into our relationships. This fear of confrontation and this resistance to commitment. But enter the Lord Jesus Christ who meets us right where we are in this moment in, the, in, the, in the, the cultural pressures and the context in which we are living in a culture that is allergic to commitment and averse to confrontation, Jesus says, if you're gonna follow him, you have to embrace commitment. And if you're gonna follow him, you're going to have to engage in confrontation. You're going to have to be willing to say some things that might if they're misinterpreted, might actually hurt someone's feelings. And you're going to have to be committed not only to him, but to his people. And in the process, and being committed to his people, you are going to have to close off some of the other options. And this is what Jesus has called us to. Following Jesus means embracing commitment and engaging in confrontation. Not just committed to him, but committed to one another. Jesus laid it out for his disciples in John chapter 13 when he was talking about the kind of love that we have to love one another. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. That's commitment. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you die for your friend, you don't have any other option. If you RSVP for the death part, you can't do something afterward or something instead. Because your, your love compels you to make that kind of commitment to be able to die for your brother or sister in Christ. This is the standard that Jesus has called us to. So the title for today's message is Loving Like Jesus. Loving one another in such a way that we are willing to die for one another. And this really expresses itself in two ways. In the commitment of membership, which is necessary in following Jesus, and the, 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 the reality of confrontation, loving confrontation within the body of Christ, within that membership. This is what Christ has called us to, to be members with one another and to lovingly confront one another. So it begins with this, loving one another through commitment. Loving one another through commitment, and I want to talk about three things this morning, of becoming a member, being a member, and then belonging as a member. So we'll start with, with becoming a member. A turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. This is what I call the first day at church. The, the disciples were gathered in the upper room. God sent the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire. They're able to speak in different languages. It draws a crowd. It's the first day of church. Peter gives the first Christian sermon ever. And his passage is Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And he preaches the word of God. He talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. People are cut to the heart. And they say, what do we do? And Peter says, repent, believe, and be baptized. And it says that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The church just used to be, you know, a little over 100 people there in the upper room, but a whole bunch were added to the church that day. And they were added because they did these two things. They received the word, they believed the gospel, they believed the message of Jesus dying for their sins on the cross. 
They received his word, and so that's what they did personally, spiritually, and visibly, and that they did something physically and visibly by getting baptized. And so becoming a member of a church, becoming a member of this church, is very simple. You got to do two things. You got to be a believer. You have to personally embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ for yourself, and you've got to be baptized. But then as the passage goes on, it describes what being a member looks like. And then you get into to verse 42, down to verse 47, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. They were devoted, that, that word devoted is, is, is what it means to be a member. Becoming a member, I'm a believer and I've been baptized. But being a member means that you have to be devoted to some things. That word devoted, it's actually a nautical term. It's used to describe a boat that's fully loaded. All the cargo, all the crew, all the supplies. The boat is at the pier. It is ready to go. All it needs is the captain to say whatever the captain says, ships ahoy, I guess, or whatever. It means that we as Christians, as members of a church, need to be devoted. We need to be ready to go, locked and loaded. Just say, go, Jesus. I'm ready to do any of these things. You can't do all these things all at once, but we gotta be devoted, we gotta be ready. The same word, the same nautical term is used to describe a servant. A servant who's just leaning forward, listening to what the master is about to say. Go get me this, go do that, go accomplish this. We need to be devoted as the people of God. Members of a church need to be devoted to a number of things. Now we've been talking about this chart at, uh, throughout this series that Jesus is at the center. It's all about Jesus and we want to worship him and walk with him and work for him and witness of him. And we want to do things biblically and relationally and prayerfully. And do you notice... I, you know, I'm not this smart, like when we came up with these words uh, to, to really recognize this, but I was really struck by this when I was studying Acts chapter 2 today. If you look at verse 42, it says the first three things they were devoted to was they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, that's biblically, and they were devoted to the fellowship, that's living relationally, and the breaking of bread, and then they were devoted to the prayers, that's prayerfully. So bang, I nailed it, Acts, Acts chapter 2, 42. I'm not that smart, but there we go. Biblically, relationally, and, and prayerfully, they were being members, and they had devoted themselves. Now, this is a big, great big long list, and um, we kind of summarized this long list in this way. So, Acts 2.41, they received his word, and they were baptized. To, to become a member, are you a believer? Have you been baptized? Welcome to Hope Church. You can be a, you can be a member here at Hope. But then being a member, you gotta be devoted to, you gotta have the ship ready to go to be devoted to the Bible, prayer, communion, fellowship, gathering, giving, hospitality, and singing. That's, that's being a member. And if you are a new member here, or if you are a visitor here, and you have a, a child in our kids program right now, that little code at the top there, Z7Y9, I better check, I hope it's not mine, uh, that means that, uh, that your child would like to see you. No, I'm F3B4. Uh, keep it, if you see that number, let me know, okay? Um, 
but uh, th- that means that there's someone uh, wanting, to, uh, wanting to see you to help you uh, with, your, with your child right now. So becoming a member is very simple, but being a member, that's, that's really, really involved. But we also need to understand that there's a sense of belonging that we should have, and that's really, that's really wh- where the term membership comes from. Acts chapter 2 doesn't mention the word member, it just says that they were, that they were added But where does this concept of membership actually come from? Well, it comes from the members of our body, our body members, our body parts, these interconnected, interdependent parts that make up the whole body. And and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of one body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, last week, we talked about baptism, and notice how baptism is referenced here. And uh, Peter King, who's a faithful member here, uh, here at Hope Church and an excellent uh, Bible teacher, and, and after I taught about baptism and I, and I mentioned that baptism is a symbol of cleansing from sin and identification with Christ and, and un- union with the body of Christ, Peter said, yeah, Ted, you nailed it, you nailed it, you nailed it, but Ted, baptism is also a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and that is absolutely true. And so I'd add a fourth category to what baptism is symbolizing. It's a symbol, it's symbolism of us receiving the Holy Spirit, as it's uh, indicated all throughout the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so we are, we are united together, Jews or Greeks, different ethnic backgrounds, slave or free, different economic backgrounds. We are all baptized into one body. And then Paul points out two ecclesiological heresies, two mistakes that we can make personally when we think about the body. The, the, the first one is the foot heresy. The foot says, if... if a, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. The, 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 the foot mentality is this idea that I don't really have anything to contribute. I'm just kind of a spectator. I'm along for the ride. If I stopped coming to Hope Church, no one, no one would notice. And, and that's, that's not true. Because if you don't have a foot, I mean, if you're not a hand, the hand can't go and get anything done unless the foot takes the rest of the body there, we are interdependent, and we can't be cut off from one another. So the foot is like, ah, you know, I don't really matter, and, and I don't really belong. But then there's another heresy, another ecclesiological heresy, and that's what, 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 the, what the eye says. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Everyone's worried about the hand. The, the foot's talking about the hand. The, I guess the, everyone's insecure about the hand for some reason. But the, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The, the whole body is dependent on one another. So some of us come to church thinking, oh, I'm here, I don't really matter. Others of us neglect the church thinking, I got my podcasts, I got my study Bible, I got the internet. What more do I need? Oh my goodness. We need one another. Following Jesus is is not an individual activity. It's something that God has designed to do corporately. And we don't want Hope Church just to be a place where you attend. 
We want it to be a people to whom you belong. And, and, and we, are a, we are, it's not just a building, we're a body. And you might, you might feel like you don't have anything to, to contribute, but you do. And you might be prideful in thinking that, that, that you don't need the rest of the body of Christ, but we do. We need the rest of the body. And so here at, here at Hope Church, to bridge the gap between Acts 2.41, to be a believer and to be baptized, and, and Acts 2.42 to 47, being devoted to all of these things and belonging, we have three steps that we ask our members to take. It starts with taking a class. The first step is to take a class. The class is actually called the first step. And, and then we invite people to have a conversation. In the class, we talk all about Hope Church, but there's no opportunity to hear about you. And so after we, after we do the class, then we meet individually with each person who's interested in becoming a member, and we have a conversation. Have you been baptized before? Do you need to get baptized? Are you a believer? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what commitment actually looks like here at Hope Church? And so we, we do that. A couple of leaders get together with a, someone who's interested in membership, and we have a conversation. And then from there, we make a commitment we don't want you to be scrolling around thinking, well, maybe I'll go to this church on this Sunday or that sort of thing. Listen, there's lots of great churches. We're, we're not really concerned that everyone has to go here. We just want people to put their roots down, to choose a church, and, and to be thankful that you even have options, and to choose a church and to be fully committed to that particular body, whether it's this one or another one that is also preaching the gospel. Now, you might be, listen, if you're a student of the Bible, you, may, you might be like, well, Acts 2.41 does not say, then Peter gathereth all the disciples and taught them, a, taught them a class, and then they all met and had an interview, and then they all signed a piece of paper to make a commitment. That's not in the Bible. You're absolutely right. That's not in the Bible. But there's, there's 2,000 years of, of distance between that first day of church and 2023 living in southern Ontario. And in situations where persecution is very high, and nominal Christianity is very low, you need almost no process in having someone become a member. In this case, in Acts chapter two, less than two months earlier, they just put Jesus on a cross. And now they're, now they're committing to follow him. So people, people knew the cost. They knew that if I'm gonna align myself with Jesus, the same thing that happened to him might happen to me. And so people understood the cost. And Peter had just preached the gospel clearly. And there was no false gospels. And, and there was no false teaching established at that time. This is, a, this is a pure moment in time. You see, we, we often in the church, we use the same words, but we don't, we don't actually have the same definition for those words. Uh, for instance, we could talk about believing in Jesus. Well, a Muslim believes in Jesus. A Mormon believes in Jesus. But when a Muslim says they believe in Jesus, and when a Mormon says they believe in Jesus, it's a very different Jesus than, than the Jesus of the New Testament. And so we need to clarify, okay, you believe in Jesus. What do you actually mean by that? Think about the word baptism. A baptism means something to us here at Hope Church as we uh, interpret the New Testament, but Presbyterians would have a different understanding of baptism. 
Roman Catholics would have a totally different understanding of baptism. Pentecostals would want to talk about the second baptism of, of the Holy Spirit. So again, we've got, to, we've got to have a conversation. We've got to clarify these things. We even see this play out in the book of Acts. Let me show you what I mean. In Acts chapter 19, Paul's in Ephesus. It says, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So these guys are called disciples. They're like, hey, we're disciples. So they're using the same word. Followers of Jesus are disciples. They said, no, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. These guys were disciples who had been baptized. But their definition of disciple and their definition of baptism wasn't right. So Paul had a clarifying conversation with them. And he said, no, 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 John's baptism wasn't it. John's baptism was setting the tone, getting people ready for who was coming, and that was Jesus. And let me tell you about Jesus. Otherwise, Paul could have just welcomed these guys into, into membership and never had the opportunity to clarify those terms. And so this is what we are inviting a people who are interested in membership here at Hope. This is why we have that process so that people would understand what it means to, be, to become a member, to be a member, and to belong as a member. Now, in, in being welcomed into the body of Christ, you are being welcomed into a group of people that love Jesus. You are being welcomed to a group of people who are, who are committed to loving one another. But, but, you are also being welcomed into a group of people who are still struggling with sin on an everyday basis. And, and listen, there is, there is no such thing as a, as a perfect church. And there is no such thing as a, as a perfect believer in Jesus Christ. There are different stages of maturity, but we are all going to still struggle with indwelling sin in our lives. And so as we are committed to one another in membership, we also need to be committed to loving confrontation. And, and that's, that's the, the passage that Lisa read for, for us uh, earlier this morning. Loving one another through confrontation. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 uh, in your Bibles. Jesus said in Matthew 18 verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is, Jesus here is laying out, he just said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And now two chapters later, he's saying, here's what to do in the church when, when sin tries to tear down what Jesus has promised to build. He's talking about church discipline. And, and here's a four things I want us to make sure that we understand about church discipline. First off, this church discipline is loving. 
Secondly, that church discipline is the responsibility of every member. That church discipline involves escalating levels of severity and that church discipline always aims for restoration. These are four things that we need to keep in mind when we think about, again, our culture, our way of life is becoming increasingly afraid of confrontation, of having these kinds of conversations, but they are absolutely vital in following Jesus. It begins by understanding that church discipline is loving. Jesus said in Matthew 18, when your brother Your brother, we're a family. Healthy families practice discipline. Healthy families talk about right and wrong. Proverbs 13 verse 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. A loving father, a loving mother, a loving older brother, a loving auntie or uncle will Work with a child to make sure that discipline and correction is happening because they love the child. God himself in Hebrews 12, 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So church discipline is uh, is loving. Don't misunderstand that. Secondly, church discipline is the responsibility of every member. It's the responsibility of every member. James chapter 5 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will continue and will cover a multitude of sins. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Loved ones, we are called to, we are called to engage in church discipline. It's everyone's responsibility. It's something that all of us have to participate in. Now, you might be saying, well, I mean, what about grace? Isn't, isn't the church supposed to be a place of grace and, and forgiveness and understanding? Well, I love, the way, I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer addresses that question in his book, Life Together. He says, if the church refuses to face the stern reality of sin, it will gain no credence when it talks of forgiveness. It is essential for the church to exercise discipline for the sake of holiness for the sake of the sinner, and for its own sake. The purpose of such discipline is not to establish a community of the perfect, but a community of people really living under the forgiving mercy of God. Discipline is a servant of the precious grace of God. Isn't the church supposed to be a place of grace and a place of forgiveness? Yes, But unless we actually acknowledge the reality of sin and the danger of what it can do to us, then there's no, there's, that's cheap grace. Then we're, we we can't actually talk about grace if we don't have an understanding of sin. We can't actually talk about forgiving one another until we actually recognize that we sin against one another. And so these concepts are not mutually exclusive. Discipline serves grace. It is all about grace. It is all about forgiveness. But unless we understand that we've sinned, we won't treasure grace. We won't treasure forgiveness. Now again, 
in Galatians chapter 6 and James chapter 5, it, it doesn't say, hey, pastors, if anyone wanders from the truth. It doesn't say, hey, elders, if, if someone is caught in sin, you should go and restore them. No, it says brothers, brothers and sisters. Church discipline is a community project. It's something that all of us are supposed to be involved in. And becoming a church member means that you are inviting the church family to help you see what might be in your blind spot, to help you see that plank in your eye or that speck in your eye. It's something that all of us need to participate in. And so we we need to communicate to the church family that they have permission to speak into your life. Why don't I just look down the row right now? Lock eyes with someone. Just let them know, hey, you have permission. Go ahead, do it. Just look down the row. You have permission. Sin is serious enough. Sin, all of us know, all of us know different addictions or different insecurities, different fears, different lusts that have come to dominate your life at one point. And that's probably part of your testimony. We know how dangerous it is. And so if someone sees us headed down a path that's going to lead us off a cliff, then then we need to give people permission to to speak into one another. This is what we are are called to. We we are called to, to be the kind of church family that not in a judgmental way, but in a loving way. Not in a way that condemns, but in a way that corrects where we point out sin in one another's lives. It's the responsibility of every church member. So church discipline is the responsibility of every member. Letter C, church discipline involves escalating levels of severity. It involves escalating levels of severity. Jesus laid it out in Matthew 18. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It starts with a personal interaction. We don't think about these personal interactions as being church discipline, but it is. When a wife lovingly takes her husband aside and says, you know what, I've noticed over the last couple of weeks just this, just this increasing intensity in your anger when you're dealing with our child. And, and I don't want anger to get a hold of your life. And then the husband says, oh, thank you so much for, for reminding me of that. And, and I, something I've struggled with in the past, thank you. And then the husband is able to correct that behavior. When a, when a small group leader takes a member of the small group aside and says, you know what, I know you, you study hard and you're, you're really engaged in the conversation, but you're, you're actually dominating the conversation a little bit too much. And there's other members of the group that aren't really saying anything because you're jumping in and answering all of the questions. And, and the small group member says, oh my goodness, yeah, yeah, I'm just so enthusiastic. I'm so fired up about the word of God, but you're right. It's not about me. It's about us as a group all being able to share and to grow. Thank you for pointing that out. It, it, it's, it's the brother in Christ who, who has a, a, a covenantized accountability relationship with another brother in Christ who takes him aside and says, look, I'm, I'm seeing some things in your, in your report here that are, that are concerning. And then the brother says, yes, you know, I've been, I, I've been I've been walking towards that cliff and I'm so glad that you're in my life who can, who can help me point, who can help me see these things and point these things out. 99.9% of the time we're doing church discipline and we don't even realize it because we're just at step one. 
we're going and telling the person their fault? Again, we're following what Jesus says. We've got to make sure we take the plank out of our eye before we help the person with the speck in theirs. 99.9% of the time, we're practicing church discipline, but we don't realize it because it's going well. (laughs) Because hopefully we have a culture of humility and teachability and interdependence on one another. And we've given each other permission to speak into each other's lives. But that .009% of the time, the person digs in their heels and hardens their heart and refuses to yield to the prompting of the Spirit. And then you got to bring in some more people, another witness. The wife brings in another trusted friend. The small group leader invites another, another member of the small group. The, uh, the, the brother in Christ invites another mature, older brother to help the guy with the covenant eyes issue. And, 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 and again, 99.9999999% of the time, then this process ends. But unfortunately, the process doesn't always end like that. And Jesus has mapped, given us a road map. This is sort of like a worst case scenario situation. It's normally over in verse 15 when you go to them personally. It's normally over in verse 16 when you invite one other mature Christian. But it's very, very sad. And in the 14 or 15 year history in our, in our church family, it's only happened three or four times where we have had to include the whole church. Where the person is, where the sin is public, where the sin is serious, and where there is no repentance and denial even of the sin, then we we have to include the the whole church and say, look, this this brother or this sister is not seeing the sin. And so we want to love this person and lovingly confront this person. We want you to pray for this person and, and, and to talk to them about it. And then, if if the person still doesn't listen then, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat them like they're not a member of the church. They are not welcome at the the time where we remember Christ's body and Christ's blood. They're not welcome at communion. That's where the term excommunication comes from. It just means, it simply means that you're not part of the community because of the way that you are living. Sam Albury sums it up quite quite beautifully when he says, Jesus also shows us that there there may sadly be times when the church needs to implement the ultimate sanction removing someone from church membership. This is a necessary and last resort. If someone is still refusing to repent and ignoring church-wide calls to do so, they are effectively living as an unbeliever, and it is therefore appropriate for the church to reflect the seriousness of this by treating them as an unbeliever. Jesus says, like like a tax collector, or, or, or a Gentile, someone who is an outsider. Now, we're still commanded to love outsiders. It, but our interaction with that person shifts. Our interactions in the past used to be edification. Hey, we're brothers and sisters. We're trying to build each other up. It shifts from edification to evangelization. Now I'm trying to remind you of the gospel that you need Jesus for forgiveness, in particular for forgiveness of that sin that you're refusing to own. So church discipline follows escalating levels of of severity. 
If you run a yellow light making a left turn off 10th line onto Argentia on the way up for church, we're not going to stand up here and kick you out of the church, okay? Uh, if we see a pattern of reckless driving in your life, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll meet with you one-on-one and, and say, listen, the way that you got a Jesus fish on the back of your bumper, you're driving like a crazy person. That's a bad witness. We're going to say, we're going to, we're going to take you aside and talk to you about that. But we're, we're going to follow the steps that Jesus has lovingly laid out for us. There's no point in having, in, in having forgiveness if we don't understand sin. And there's no point in having a membership if there's no way for you to lose your member. What's the point? Why don't you just make everyone a member? membership matters because the gospel matters, because Jesus matters, because forgiveness matters and grace matters. And if a person is living like sin doesn't matter, then they're also living like forgiveness doesn't matter. And they're not living in a way, all all the church then is doing is just confirming based off the way that you're living, like an unbeliever, we are just going to confirm that you are an unbeliever and we're going to try to reach you with the gospel all over again. So church discipline involves escalating levels of severity. And then lastly, church discipline always, always aims for restoration. It always aims for restoration. All the New Testament passages that talk about church discipline, many of them we've looked at this morning, all have this in the end. Matthew 18, that the brother may be one, that we would win our brother, that they would return from their sin, that they, James 5.19, that they would be brought back. Not kicked out, but brought back. Galatians 6, that they would be restored. That we have these hard conversations so that they can turn from their sin and be restored. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that, that this individual would be saved in the day of the Lord. They're not living like a believer now, but if, if, if we were just to say that's okay then we don't want them to be an unbeliever in the end of days when they stand before Jesus. We want them to be saved in the day of the Lord. And so we practice church discipline, again, always, always, always for the purpose of restoration. I love the way uh, John Anwuchekwa uh, talks about a church a discipline. He, he describes it in this way. He says, every church is full of people in the pews that are in a lifelong struggle with sin. We will wrongly admit false converts and true converts will get caught up in sin. Basically, your churches will have both Judases and Peters on its membership roster. Sin doesn't ruin churches. Unconfessed and unaddressed sin does. Our membership process is not perfect. We want to make sure that someone is a believer and that they've been baptized. And so we have this conversation. We ask them questions. Describe the gospel. Who was Jesus? Why did he die? What does that mean for you personally? We we, we sort of grill people. How are you growing in the Lord? Tell us about your personal devotions. How are you putting sin to death in your... We we want to do the best job that we possibly can to ensure that the person who is becoming a member actually is a believer. But that process isn't perfect. We we, we can't see beyond the skin. We, 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 We can't see into someone's spirit or soul. We don't know if they truly are a believer or if they're just really good at answering questions. 
So sometimes we will admit false converts and sometimes they will prove that they were false converts by the way that they live and the way that they respond to church discipline. That's the Judas category. Some of us will be like Peter. Peter who was so greatly used by the Lord but so frequently made stupid mistakes and needed to be corrected and needed to be pointed back to the gospel and what matters. The trouble is we can't treat Judases like they're Peters and we can't treat Peters like they're Judases. And, and we have to make sure that, that, that we are leaning and relying on the Holy Spirit and the wisdom from God's word. Because sin doesn't destroy churches. Jesus knew that we would still sin. That's what Matthew 18 is about. We're still, we're all going to struggle with sin. So we all need to give one another permission. Sin does not destroy churches. Unaddressed and unconfessed sin is what destroys churches. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We want to do what will help the church be healthy and strong. We want to do that which will build up the body, not to tear down what Jesus has been, uh, has promised to, uh, what, what Jesus has promised to build. He says, I will build my church and we're not going to let sin tear it down, whether it's sin in our lives or the sin in the person two seats over or the sin in someone in your small group or your serving team. This is something that all of us have to own. We have to be committed to one another and we have to be willing to confront one another when we see sin uh, in another person's life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. I'm going to pray for us now. And, um, and then we're going to respond in song. So Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, praying for your help, praying for your spirit to allow us right now to understand the weightiness of sin, the destructive and deceptive power that sin can have in our lives. And Lord, in light of that, I pray that we would be committed to living in relationship with one another, living as members with one another, and that we would be committed to having loving confrontation with one another. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace. Lord, our whole church, everything that we do is founded on the rock of Jesus Christ, the rock-solid reality of forgiveness and of grace through his cross, but that forgiveness and that grace doesn't make any sense unless we acknowledge the reality of sin. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would unite us as a body around these truths for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.